All right, go ahead and uh, open up your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. And if you will, let's stand together. I know you just sat down, but, you know, got to keep you on your heels, got to keep you on your heels, toes, toes. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We gather now around your word to hear from you. It is our prayer, God, that you speak through your Holy Spirit the message that we need to hear. And even though we come from different backgrounds with different stories and different things going on in our lives, God, there is one thing that remains sure, and that is your word is your word and it is meant for us. And we also come trusting that you have gathered us here right now at this very moment to hear your word. So we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. And that you would use this time that we have together to both bring glory to your name and joy to your people. The beauty of having your word in 
our midst, to be able to be encouraged by it and challenged by it sometimes simultaneously. It's such a gift from you, Father. Such a grace. And that we can have it so freely. We pray that we would magnify the name of the Lord in the reading and the teaching and the responding of your word. It is in Christ's glorious name that we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. The background of uh, this series, uh, Basic Christianity, has been to examine the Scripture and, and to see how Scripture would determine and what Scripture says are the marks of the true and genuine faith. So what is the scripture saying is a true Christian, a genuine Christian, and how is that to be lived out? Now, the kicker is, is we must allow scripture, we must allow the Bible to direct those beliefs and to direct our lives. It's, it's not our opinions, it's not what's been handed down through teachings from our, our family and our friends throughout the years. It is what does the scripture say? Because a lot of well-meaning people mess it up over time. We can get into patterns. I mean, that's what the natural flesh within us wants to do, is it wants to twist the word, sometimes unintentionally. But it happens. So we must always be going to the word and letting the word dictate what we believe and how we live. In week one of this series, we looked at what it would be to have a life, a joy-filled life. And, and that basis of having a life filled with joy is starting with the right foundation, right? The right foundation of our belief in Jesus. Again, John is writing this letter to the church in order to fight against false teachers who were trying to say that Jesus wasn't truly the Son of God in the flesh, that he was simply a mirage, that he was... Um, in essence, a ghostly type figure that appeared real to them, but he was not real in the sense of being in the flesh. So he appeared to be real to them, but he was simply an image. And so John starts in the very beginning of the letter explaining why that was false and the reality that Jesus is not simply a mirage, but he was very real and we have looked upon him, we have seen him we have heard him we have touched him and so we know that he is real and he's saying now we're proclaiming this message to you so that you also may have fellowship with us and so that your joy may be complete so we we start with the basis of understanding that jesus is truly god and he's god in the flesh and as we rest in that truth then we are allowed to have a joy filled life because we are able to believe that he is who he says he is at that point so that's the starting point. And then last week, we realized that as we believe in Jesus, that he is God in the flesh, that he is very God, very God, that he is who he says he is, then our belief in that allows us to um, make 
steps in avoiding the deception of sin. Not that we would be freed of sin because we won't see perfection until we are in the presence of Christ after our earthly death. But we will able to avoid the deception of sin as we trust Jesus and his work, his atoning sacrifice. Remember his propitiation for our sins. That is that he gave himself for us in our place to take our sins and to be able to give us redemption so as we trust Jesus as we as we, ugh, as we trust Jesus words and his works then we're able to rest in him and fight against the temptation of sin today we go even a step further in seeing that the Christian life isn't simply The knowing of who Jesus is, it isn't simply knowing what Jesus is saying, but it's actually fleshed out as that knowledge leads to obedience. And the main idea for where we will be today as we are called to love is this, that genuine faith will love greatly because you have been loved greatly. Now, I know that I'm going to fumble some words up today. My sinuses have got me all out of whack and my mouth is super dry even though I've drank water. But I'm not going to drink water because it's distracting to me, um, which is easily done, as you know. So we're going to dive in and we're going to make it through this thing, okay? So as we begin to understand what it means to be called by God to love, we must start with the right foundation, yet again, to love God. That's the starting point. We must have a high view of God if we are to do what God has called us to do. You can't live a life that glorifies God if you don't think that God is worth glorifying. You can't live a life that honors God if we don't believe that He's God. And that's what John is trying to encourage the church. Don't listen to these false teachers who try to twist these teachings of the word and try to make Jesus something that he's not, or rather take away from who he is. No, listen to the word. Listen to the word of life. Let that give you hope. And he starts in verse 3. He says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. And whoever says I know him. But does not keep his commandments. Is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But. Whoever keeps his word. In him truly. The love of God is perfected. Last week as we were. Looking at. John's earlier writing to the church. In verses Um, Chapter 1, verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that is, if we confess our sin, if we understand what our sin is, that we have sinned against a holy God. So again, this goes back to the point that we must understand God as being God. And we must see Him as high. We must see Him as holy. We must see Him as majestic. So if we start there, and if we confess that we have sinned against Him, and that we can't save ourselves, that we desperately need Him to save us, 
says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now he's saying, by this, the promise that he is who he says he is, and that he dies in our place to forgive our sins, by this we know, if we keep his commandments. And it says he is faithful and just. See, true confession leads to a new life. It leads to a changed life. Remember last week we said that it's not, confession is not simply concealment. It's not we're telling people what part of our sins are so they could think we're confessing or, or so that we think we're tricking God. No, confession is to bring it all, lay it out, all out on the table so that we're confessing our desperate need for God to save us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I think so often we try to mirror confession with concealment. But as scripture says, God cannot be mocked. He will not be mocked. He knows. He knows our hearts. He he knows our struggles. He knows our lives. He knows our reality. But true confession leads to a new life. Is it going to be a perfect life? Absolutely not. We're still going to make mistakes. We still have a sin nature within us and we still have this, this proclivity to sin. But he is good. And he is faithful and he is just. And so true knowledge of Jesus and, and being known by him leads us to obedience. Now, now there's a big kicker there, right? Because a lot of the false teachers that John is writing against said they knew Jesus, right? But they knew of a teaching of Jesus, and they were twisting that to fit their own life and their own schemes. But to know Jesus and the knowledge of Jesus according to the word of God, but even more to be known by him. Right? Because we can know a lot about Jesus. We can grow up in church. We can do the church things. We can say the right prayers. We can do the right actions. But unless we have trusted, if we have confessed our sins, if we have leaned on Jesus for salvation, then that knowledge isn't worth anything unless we understand that we have given ourselves to him and now he knows us. And as we understand that he knows us, then it is our desire to live in obedience. So the question is, is am I striving to live in obedience to Jesus? Again, We will fail and we will have bumps in the road, but am I trying, striving to live in obedience to Jesus or not? Because if I truly know him in a way that I've trusted him for salvation, then I love him. And if I love him, then I want to serve him. It's delight. It's not duty. If we're coming into church or we're entering every day of our life saying, I've got to do this, this, and this so that God will be pleased with me. And it's like getting up, you know, how people say if you have to, you know, if you get up for work, you don't want to get up. But, you know, when you, what is it? Find something you love and you don't work a day in your life. 
But if, if we hate our job, we don't want to get up in the morning, do we? Y'all act like y'all have no idea what I'm talking about. Y'all must love your work, right? But we've all been there, right? We've had things in our life that where we just don't want to go through with them because we, we're not looking forward to them. But being known by God and being saved by God, it gives us a completely new perspective and we want to serve Him. We want to honor Him. We want to give Him glory. He goes on in the end of verse 5 there. He says, by this, again, he, he uses this terminology quite a lot. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he once walked. The Bible tells us that a tree is judged by its fruit. Now, again, we live in a day and in a culture where we take Scripture and we kind of pull a Thomas Jefferson and we rip out the pages that we don't really want to believe in and we, we black out the parts that we don't really want to follow and we kind of put together our own Scripture and we, we flippantly quote Scripture or rather misquote Scripture and misapply Scripture without understanding the full context. And so what we have is every day of our life we're probably seeing people on Facebook saying, well, I thought the Bible says don't judge. Right? But if we understand what the passage is teaching, it actually says that we must judge our brothers and sisters, but in a way to love them and serve them, not for malice, not for deceit, not for wrong, but for love. Because Jesus clearly says that a tree is judged by its fruit. If it's bearing bad fruit, it's not a healthy tree. Right? And so, if we say we are his, then our lives will reflect him. If we say we are the people of God, then our lives must be bearing fruit. Good fruit. And we could try to fool anyone and everyone if we want. And I have had this experience, and you probably have too, where you walk up to a grapevine or a, or a bush and the fruit looks very pretty. And you bite it and it crosses your eyes because it's not good, right? On the surface, we might look good. We might play the part well, but God knows the heart. Are we bearing good fruit? Not just pretty fruit, but good fruit. But it all starts with our love for God. If you want to obey Him, then you love Him. You don't obey him to earn his love. You obey him because he has already loved you in Christ. That's the difference between Christianity and everything else. Is that God loved us and came to us and came for us. He's not demanding that we check off boxes so that maybe, just maybe, if we do it right, we'll make our way to him. That's not the gospel of Jesus. How do I know? Because he just said earlier in chapter 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Because he is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Meaning that Jesus came and he has done the work for us. He 
on himself, took all of the sins of all of his people for all of eternity, and he put it on himself, and God destroyed his son so that he could give us life. So if we're called to love, we have to first start with our love of God. That's the point that we start. That's the foundation that everything else hinges on. And as we begin to understand our love for God based on his love for us and what he has proven himself in his nature and his character and his goodness towards us, then we can understand the second point of the text, which is then that we should love people. So our love for God leads us to love others. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment but an old commandment. That you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time it is a new commandment. That I am writing to you. Which is true in him. And in you. Because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. So John then kind of begins to move into a really specific way. That we are to live in obedience. As a reflection of Jesus. Right? So we're called to love God. We're called to live in obedience. If we. Say that we know him, then we'll keep his commands. How do we know? Because we are reflecting Jesus. I know that every one of us are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? If you've ever been to a wedding or, or ever been, you know, um, in a Christian bookstore around um, Valentine's Day, then you see 1 Corinthians 13 everywhere, right? Faith, hope, and love, you know, um, Love knows no wrong, love, you know, so we go on and on about that. But the point of that passage is actually not to be stamped on a card at Valentine's Day. The point of that passage is to prove what it means to be known by God and to love like God, right? Because in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is writing to a church, a church that was very messed up at the time. They had really twisted scripture and they were doing some very odd things. And he tells them in 1 Corinthians 12 that he is going to give them gifts and that they should be using those gifts for the glory of God and the building up of his church. And at the end of that, chapter 12, he says, and still I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And then he goes into 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and it's all about love. We love because we have been loved by the Father. And so the kicker there is it doesn't matter all the gifts that we have. If we have not loved, then as he says in 1 Corinthians 13, we're simply a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We're not doing anything. We're not doing any good. In fact, we might be doing harm. So if we say we're doing all the works of God, but we don't have the love of God within us, what are we doing? See, genuine Christians who, again, know Jesus and are known by him, will be known by their love for others. You know, it's a pretty sad time when um, people look at the church and say, we're the worst at loving. Right? I mean, that's, you know, that, that's what culturally everybody outside of the church is saying, that the church is just not a loving place. Now, that's not true of every church. Because those who genuinely love Christ and have genuinely surrendered to him for salvation, they're going to be marked by love. Now we have a lot of people who are claiming to be followers of Christ, who are claiming to be the people of God, who are not living as a reflection of God because they don't know him. 
they associate with him and they associate with his people and, and they say they're doing the work of God, but they're not. It's all about whether or not we have truly, as a verse nine, one verse nine, if we have confessed our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we've truly rested in the work of Jesus, then our lives will be different. And I love verse 7, again, he says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you heard from the beginning. The old commandment is that word that you have heard. And what this is, is a direct reflection back to John's gospel, right? In chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, the kicker there is that we are to love one another just as he has loved us. Now, let's think about this, right? If we know that Jesus doesn't love us or save us based on our work or our merit, that it's simply by his grace, and that he does so knowing the depths of our sin, knowing our nature and our character, then that means his love is perfectly unconditional, right? Which means he loves us despite us. So he loves me even though he knows my struggles in this category, this category, and this category. He loves me even when I completely blow it. He loves me even when I lash out in anger. He loves me when I'm not trusting him. And he says... You should love one another just as I have loved you. It's pretty convicting. Because our love for other people is so often not a picture of Christ's love for us. Right? Because as soon as someone disagrees with us, or as soon as someone harms us, or rejects us, or goes against us, or whatever the case may be, we're not loving him anymore, right? It's like somebody just switches the, the light off. We're no longer loving them because of what they have done to us. Yet, what we do to Christ never hinders his love for us. Listen to this quote from John Piper. He says, this is a very remarkable rebuke to typical gospel preaching and witnessing today. For John... The commandment of love belongs to what people should hear from the beginning. It is not an optional stage two in Christian growth. The gospel contains not only the commandment to trust Jesus, but also the commandment and the power of that trust to be changed into a loving person. So it's not, you know, we're going to go through this thing in phases. And phase one is we trust Jesus for salvation and we learn what it means to trust him. And then as we grow older, then we begin to understand, oh, by the way, you not only just simply trust Jesus, but you also have to love everybody else. Which is kind of the way we go about this thing sometimes, right? I uh, heard a really good um, analogy that speaks to this just at the end of this week, I was listening to a book, and, 
and he was like basically saying, you know, if somebody comes in and I give somebody a pair of um, good ice skates and I say, you know, all you have to do is just learn how to skate and you just be your own little free bird on the, on the ice and you just do your thing and, and you could be a part of our group, but you just kind of skate your own way, doing your own thing. But then later, after they get it, come say, oh, by the way, it wasn't so that you could just learn to skate and have your own way around. It's because we want you to be a part of our hockey team, working together for a common goal. Right? So it's not that the rules change, which is so often the way we portray it. It's that we are called by God for God from the get-go. We are called to trust Him and to serve Him. So our love for others is not optional. Now I know there's some quirkiness here in, in verses 7 and 8 because he's saying I, I'm writing not... A new commandment, but an old commandment. And then at the end, he goes, um, and at the same time, I'm writing a new commandment. So let, let's, let's break that down a little bit. See, the old, when he says, I'm writing an old commandment, it's pointing again to a few things. He, he starts by pointing to the nature and the character of Jesus. This is what has been taught from the very beginning, that Jesus is God, and in him is light. And that light is the life of men, that he is good, and that his mercy endures forever. We see it over and over and over again, all throughout Scripture. That he loves us completely and fully, regardless of who we are and what we do. The Old Testament is teaching that. The Gospels are teaching that, which is New Testament. And then even in parts of the New Testament, we begin to see that it's pointing to Jesus as the promised Messiah, which fills in the Old Testament promise to the church. And here's a beautiful thing. That in the original Greek, when he says a new commandment, that word new literally means that the old has given birth to the new. So the promise that God had given throughout the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus and it was preparing us for Jesus so that when Jesus comes, he fulfills that promise from God to his people. It also refers to Revelation, I mean, Revelation, Leviticus um, 19.18, which literally says to love our neighbor as ourself. Now here is where it gets really tricky for us. Okay? In the Old Testament, it's in the original Hebrew, right? So the original Hebrew, that neighbor, that word neighbor literally means alien. So it's talking about those outside of the nation of Israel. All of those who are different, who believe different, who look different, who act different, who are different, they are to be loved just as we would love our own people. But in the New Testament, when it says that we should love our neighbor, it is literally referring to our enemy. So we are to love our enemy as ourself. So we are to love the alien and the enemy, the people who are not like us, who think different than us, who look different than us, who act different than us, who believe different than us. We are to love them as ourselves. And he's saying, if you know me, then you will reflect me. And if you love me, then you're going to love like me. So Christians are called to love all people, including our enemies, regardless of our differences. There's no asterisk on who we are to love and not love. But, man, we, we sure live quite differently than that, don't we?
We'll just go on. See, if we know him, then we obey him and we love like him. Let that sink in for a second, okay? If we know him, that means we've truly trusted. Not we simply just know who Jesus is, but we actually know Jesus as our Lord and our Savior who has come in. He has redeemed my messed up, broken soul, and he calls it his own. Then I obey him because I love him and I cherish him. And I love like him. Which means I love the people that I hate. And I love the people who don't do what I think they should do. And I love the people who hold vastly different values than I do. Now, does that look anything like the culture we live in? Nope, not even close. So as the people of God, we are called to be a reflection of Jesus. So don't just jump on the next political bandwagon or the next church bandwagon. Go to the word of God. What is the word of God teaching us? What does the word of God say is important? What does the word of God say is valuable? Another quote for you from F.F. Bruce. He says, if the Christian fellowship is marked by such love, then it will be recognized as the fellowship of Christ followers. Okay, think about that, right? So if we're, if we're saying that we're Christian, then our fellowship will be recognized as the fellowship of Christ followers. So we're not just getting together and hanging out. It's something completely different. He goes on, he says, it will bear the unmistakable stamp of his love. So we are to love God and we are to love people. He goes on in verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And does not know where he is going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John, again, he's speaking against those who are claiming to be followers of Jesus. But they've morphed their beliefs into what they want it to be. Not something that's rooted in Christ's teaching. And so they're, they're saying they are Christian, they are saying they're followers of Jesus, but their lives look nothing like His. Their lives reflect nothing of Him. So they're claiming to be in light, but they're actually remaining in darkness. And we can look at that, this in two different ways. Right? We can look at it individually. 
So we can take stock of our individual lives and say, where am I? Am I claiming to walk in the light while I'm actually walking in darkness? Am I actually, have I actually truly trusted in Jesus to save me? Or have I just been trying to merit my way to him? Am I just trying to work my way to him? Am I just trying to appease him with everything I say and do? Living a good morally life. Or have I actually just trusted him and, and, and let him shine through me? And the other way of looking at this is not as an individual, but as a church. So are we trusting the word of God to lead us? And teach us and let it shape who he wants us to be. And who he commands us to be. See, the word of God is not simply for us to interpret, well, this is how I, want, I think God wants me to live. Based on what he said here. Right? And, and it's not, well, I, I think. No, what does the word of God command? See, this is why theology is important for all of those who try to say it's not. If we say we believe that God is God, right, and we believe that God gives us his word, then the only solution is to believe that this word is inerrant and infallible. And inspired, which means it is spotless, at least in the original languages. To deny that means we actually don't believe that God is God. Because we have, like at the end of verse um, chapter 1 says, then we have made him a liar. Right? So, do we believe the word of God to be the word of God? Do we believe God speaking to us through his word is what God would have us to hear? So then we have to step back and say, well, if I say I believe that, but my life looks nothing like that, do I actually believe it? Verse 9 is basically telling us that a true Christian, not by name only, but a true Christian, one who has fully trusted in Jesus and surrendered to Jesus' life, a true Christian cannot hate his brother. And this is a major theme throughout all of John's letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I'm not even going to ask you to think abstractly about this. I just want you to think of the current events, what have taken place in our world over the last month. Are we believing the commands of God? Are we trusting in the word of God? I'll let that just stir within you. See, we see a contrast, right? Here. So again, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is what? 
still in darkness. But the contrast, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Why is there no cause for stumbling? Because the, in the light you, you see, right? The light has shone forth in our life, and it allows us to see. So the people of God, those who have trusted Jesus for salvation, walk in the light. But then again, he goes back to verse 11. He says, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know him. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So again, for those who hate, who hold anger against another, who walk in darkness, will continue to stumble because they are blinded by the darkness. But the good news for us is that there is hope in Jesus to be freed from such anger and hate. Moving on, he says that we should not love the world. So we are to love God, we are to love people and not love the world. Verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. John is writing an appeal to the church. And, and, and he uses what appears to be three different levels of people. It's actually two. So children is like the generic. He's writing to all. I'm, I'm writing to you little children. I'm writing to you church. And then specifically he gets to the fathers and the young men. So the, the ones who are more spiritually mature, the leaders of the church who have an intimate relationship with Jesus. He's encouraging them to press on in their spiritual maturity. And then he turns to the young men and he's, and, and he's looking to the younger folk who have trusted in Jesus. These are, he's talking to the ones who are followers of Christ. He's not talking to the ones who are rejecting Jesus at this point. He's talking to the church, right? He's talking to the saved people. He's, so he's pointing now to the younger folk who have trusted in Jesus. And they're walking in the light. And he makes this really interesting admonition towards the end. So he goes on. He says, I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That means they, they understand who God is to the best of their ability. And they understand that he is God and that he is majestic and he's powerful. And he has always been and he always will be. And he's now turning to say, I write to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You have trusted in Jesus above all things. And he's writing this encouragement to them because of their steadfastness in the Lord. That they're not giving way to the false teachings. They're not giving way to these twisted words of these um, people who have split off of their church. But they're trying to pull them away. He is encouraging them. And he's saying, your sins are forgiven. And I'm exhorting you to walk in the way of the Father. So remember, Christian, when... We truly confess our sin to Jesus and we trust him for salvation. He saves us for eternity. His salvation is not weak. His salvation is not flawed. His salvation towards us is not 
determined or affected by who we are and what we do. He saves because of who he is. And he is perfect in his nature and his character. And John is encouraging them in their faith to give them strength. And he's doing this as their pastor. Again, this I'm writing to you little children. He's writing as a father will love his kids. He's, he's writing as a pastor loves his church to continue to fight the good fight of faith. To continue to walk in the light and not be fooled by the darkness. And he goes on in verses 17, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so he gives them this encouragement, this admonition in verses 12 through 14. And he immediately turns now to a warning. You're doing well. You're trusting the Lord. But do not love the world. Do not love the things of the world. And this is strong language for those whose devotion is not Jesus. So... He's writing to a people, some of whom have trusted in Christ, some of whom who haven't. And after giving encouragement to the people of God, he turns to those who have trusted Jesus. And he's giving them this harsh judgment, really. See, we have to guard our hearts because our, our temptation is to fall in these pathways, these these pitfalls of thinking more of what others think of us or, or giving way to the world's teaching. And, and we got to stand on this side of the fence regardless of even what we think about it because we don't want so-and-so to think otherwise or, or we don't want to have to deal with, with punishment or we don't want to have to deal with persecution. We don't want to have to deal with any of that. We need to just stay the course. But he's saying, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Remember, sin deceives. The world and its offers are tempting. And they charm our hearts because our hearts have this natural tendency to want to sin. But I'm here to tell you, and I want to echo what John is saying to this church, that Jesus is better. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it's worth it. And he gives us joy, and he is better. See, we cannot love God and the world at the same time. You cannot serve two masters, you can't straddle the fence. Why? Because of the things of the world are not from the Father. And he gives us three categories of that. The first and the second are the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. They're sinful desires. We're worried about what everyone else has for us. And we want to be pleasing to everyone else. And we want everyone to be pleased by us. And we want that thing, the thing that we can't have. And we give everything we have to obtain it. We crave, we lust, 
for things more than Jesus. And then he says in the pride of life, which is not sinful desire, it's actually sinful behavior. We begin to boast in who we are. We don't need God. I don't need him. It's just a little goof up, but I'm pretty good, so I'll be all right. But in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who know we're desperately in need of Jesus. Those who know we desperately need the grace of God. And so what does all this say? And it's saying that when we love the world, we desire creation more than creator. And when we see things in front of us that we just can't live without, those things for us have become God to us. And God himself is simply an afterthought. Again, verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the true Christian who has genuine faith lives in the security of Jesus' work and he walks in love and obedience. So we're called to love because we have been loved. With a love that is indescribable. Therefore we love in return. Not out of duty, but delight. For the glory of God and for the joy that we receive from Him. Let's pray. Father, may we be a people who are marked by love. Love that we have found in you a love that we receive from you may we fight the temptation to just do what everyone else around us is doing may we seek out and search out the scriptures may we find hope and rest and assurance and a promise in knowing who you are and what you call us to do and what you command for us to believe And may we live a life that is pleasing to your sight. That we have been so changed by who you are and how you love us that we love unconditionally in return. Regardless of our differences, regardless of our circumstances, let us love greatly because we have been loved greatly. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.